The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Well, it's really a pleasure to be here tonight. I'm really honored. This is uh, at a time of great abundance for me. I uh, got invited to do a Dharma talk here last Thursday, so did uh, last Thursday's talk right in this room. The day before that, I was out at the Coast Side, and the Coast Side group is um, truly marvelous extension of this group. And if you ever have a chance, go out to the Montara Lighthouse and have it sit out there. It's really a special place to sit. So I was there last Wednesday, and then this Wednesday I'm going to be there again. So I'm feeling like I'm making it up, and it's pretty cool. (laughs) So tonight my wish is to share a part of practice that's been very near and dear to my heart. And I call it this evening, the title is The Sound of Silence. And so what do I mean by the sound of silence? Silence is the space between the stimulus that we receive. And as we sit, our practice is oriented, it's, it's inclined to help us open more space. And so what long-term practitioners find and tell us is that as we sit and we practice just being present for what is, there's a spaciousness that opens. And instead of the normal, everyday, rapid-fire stimulus, sounds, thoughts, challenges, things to do, places to go, people to see, there's a spaciousness. And so this practice that I'm wanting to talk about this evening and share with you is a practice that opens that spaciousness. And you may say, well, why? Why? What good is spaciousness? Well, I'll tell you a, a little story. It's a story about some firefighters who uh, worked for the National Park Service in the state of Washington. And there was, at one point, a difficult fire that was burning down in the bottom of a canyon and 24 firefighters had showed up and with their materials, their pickaxes and their water on their back and so forth. Personal firefighters, people that were using what they could carry themselves. And the wind shifted and instead of being localized at the bottom of the canyon, the fire began burning up a hillside right in the direction of these 24 firefighters. And so 23 of the firefighters bolted up the hill. The minute that they saw this potential cataclysm happening, they ran as fast as they could to get to the top of the hill, and hopefully over the top, 
and to some safety. One firefighter noticed that there was fuel around him, but it wasn't a lot of fuel. And the fire was burning very quickly. It was one of those hot fires that just kind of skips over the top of fuel. And at the end of the fire, you can go back and still find unburned fuel. It just kind of picks up the top of the, the flames. The flames just touch the top of what can burn. This firefighter lit a fire just around where he was and fanned it so that it moved out so that the got rid of as much fuel as he could. And then he took out his space blanket and lay down on the ground and pulled the space blanket over the top of him. And the fire roared up past him, kind of skipped over the top because there wasn't enough fuel to really burn vigorously there, carried on and did, unfortunately, intercept all of the others that were running up to the top of the hill. And it was one of the most difficult experiences that they've had in the National Park Fire Service. And so the, the question is, when fire is coming our way, how do we notice what our resources are and how do we come to a conclusion about how best to preserve our life? Things can be out of control and moving very rapidly. And yet, we always have something that can be done. Something that can be done to improve our situation, to help others. So this is the reason that I'm putting forward for opening spaciousness. The more spaciousness we have, the more opportunity to assess what our resources are and to make a creative, insightful decision and take some action that's beneficial both for us and for others. So the, the example of the fire is not that far out, I think, from what we face in our lives. You look at a headline or you turn on the radio or you catch a brief report and the report has some violence in it or some coercion or some manipulation or something or other. And the, this is heavy on our hearts. It's, it's hard on us. And we get numb to it, so we don't notice how hard it is on our hearts. When we sit in meditation, the way it seems to me is that we are once again softening our hearts. So after being out in the give-and-take marketplace of life, just sitting and just being quiet is our opportunity to again be present with just what is inside us. And the tradition of 2,500 years, the teaching that comes from the man that we call the Buddha, tells us 
that what is there is all that we need for our freedom. That's a radical statement, and it certainly was 2,500 years ago, that we have within the limits of our body from the top of the head to the bottom of the feet and in our lives as we interact with people and have relationships and so forth, we have all that we need to set us free and to live full, vibrant lives. This teaching came at a time when there was lots of prescriptions about how people had to sacrifice things or burn this or wear this or and so on. Maybe even as complex as today with all the proscriptions about how we should worship or how we should think or how we should act. One of the guys that has been a deep teacher for me has over the years been Krishnamurti. And I just want to share a little reading of Krishnamurti's from his book called The Freedom from the Known. Freedom from the Known. After his practice sitting and so forth, his concern was to free himself from the known and to help others be free from the known. So I'll read a little bit and we'll understand more about what he's about. Have you ever examined how you listen? It doesn't matter to what, whether to a bird, to the wind, to the rushing waters, in a dialogue with yourself. If we try to listen, we find it extraordinarily difficult because we are always projecting our opinions and ideas, our prejudices, our backgrounds, our inclinations, our impulses. When they dominate, we hardly listen to what is being said. One listens and therefore learns only in a state of attention a state of silence in which the whole background is in abeyance, is quiet, then, it seems to me, it is possible to be free. So one listens and therefore learns only in a state of attention, a state of silence, in which the whole background is in abeyance. And that's how it's possible to be free. So the practice that I'm suggesting is one that's helped me. It's one that comes from the 2,500-year tradition. And I'll suggest it for you. And just before I suggest it, I'd just like to see the hands of those people who are at least a little bit familiar with it. So the name of this practice is the five remembrances. So just raise your hand if, if, you're, if you've touched or experienced. Not so many. Interesting. 
Interesting to me. I also asked this question at the coast side last Wednesday night, and uh, no hands went up. The five remembrances are a practice that helps us open the spaciousness that lets us truly notice what's happening. They are originally presented in the Anguttara Nikaya. And this is the part of the discourses or the Pali Canon or the scriptures, the 25 or so hundred year old scriptures of numbered qualities. So you're probably aware of the fact that the suttas within the body of teachings that the suttas convey, there is a section which is about numbered things. So, and we're all familiar in our Buddhist readings with all the, the uh, numbered lists. We have the, the four of this and the three of that and the five of something else. So this is from the Anguttara Nikaya. And I'm just going to say what these remembrances are, and I'll suggest that they're a good thing to have in your daily practice. And in fact, the teachings come with that suggestion, that as we remind ourselves of these remembrances, we open the spaciousness. We, we become more present for just what is. So the first of the remembrances, I am of a nature to grow old. I cannot escape growing old. Second one. I am of a nature to become sick. I cannot escape becoming sick. Third one. I am of a nature to die. I cannot escape death. Fourth one. All that is dear to me and all that I love, all these things are of a nature to change. I cannot escape being separated from all that is dear to me and all that I love, all these things. And the fifth... My actions are the ground of my being. I cannot escape the consequences of my actions. Okay, so just to run back through, it's about we're going to get old, we're going to get sick, we're going to die, 
that which we love, those things which we love and are dear to us, will change and we will be separated from them. And then finally, our actions are the ground of our being. As we act, we create our lives. And we cannot escape the consequences of our actions. So those are the five remembrances. And uh, when these remembrances are translated and shared, sometimes people say, oh, gosh, they're kind of gloomy. You know, I would rather, you know, not be remembering this all the time. It's uh, not my favorite thing to remember that I'm going to be separated from all those that I love and that they will be separated from me or whatever. Eric Kolvig is a wonderful teacher who has taught here a number of times. And Eric, in his teaching practice, is sometimes asked to marry people. And so he has a, a wedding ceremony that is built on the five remembrances, and in particular the one about all that is dear to me, all that I love, is of a nature to change. I will be separated from it. And so Eric, I think, very wisely asks these two people who are madly in love and can't think of anything but each other and, and are just, you know, ready to move out into life just as it is, just embrace it all, kind of holds them up short. And he says, now, wait a second. Let's just be real about this. You know, your relationship is precious and wonderful. Be aware that it is of the nature to change and that you too, being married, are of a nature to change. And that eventually, in the fullness of time, you will be separated. So my wish is that by sharing these somewhat gloomy, uh, you might say, uh, negative thinking remembrances, that you can move beyond your first feeling of ooh and get to where you can say, you know what, by God, somebody told it true. You know, it's not about sweetness and light and, and uh, things are going to be fine forever and, you know, we'll just live in this gorgeous setting and it's all going to work out, except for those other people who don't practice correctly or whatever. So this teaching gives us a chance to just be real with what is. I remember uh, Gil at one point talking about a Dharma talk that he gave, and he said that somebody came up afterwards and told him that it was boring. And <laughs> he said, you know, I took that as a compliment. 
that I wasn't providing so much stimulation and so much input and so much, you know, that it was just, you know, just being real with what it was. And if boredom is what is, that's that's fine. It's good to be acknowledged. The, the problem is when it's there and we don't acknowledge it or we don't, we kind of gloss it over, you know, or whatever. So, so those are the five remembrances. Of course, we have other things to remember in our lives. Many, many positive, wonderful things to remember in our lives. But these particular remembrances are, I think, a gift of the Dharma. They are a true gift. They give us the chance to make up our life just ourselves. So noticing what is and how the world works and how life works gives us the ability to look in the mirror in the morning and to see ourselves fresh. We're not coming from the point of view of, you know, I have to be the best uh, student or I have to be the best physician or I have to be the fastest runner or whatever. In this culture, there's a lot of that and it's made us strong in some ways. Uh, I think it's also given us some big challenges. But the point is, that when we can be real with ourselves and real with each other without having to continue an illusion, to continue the gloss, that there's a freedom. And I think it's the freedom that Krishnamurti talks about. The freedom to just be with the silence and notice what's in this silence. Oftentimes, what we notice is in the silence comes because we have a precondition to notice certain things. I find myself uh, hearing cell phones. I have heard at least one cell phone tonight. And yeah, I'm just conditioned that way. Uh, there's something about a cell phone that says, listen, you know, pay attention. And... So as I was sitting here, I was experiencing some spaciousness, and all of a sudden I was, whoa. I was just right there. My attention just came right there. You may be familiar with the consciousness research that Richard Davidson has done at the University of Wisconsin using long-term Tibetan meditators they have found an interesting phenomena. And it's uh, relating to the startle response. So the startle response is what happens inside of us as our brains and our muscles and the, all the parts of our nervous system try to cope with a harsh or sudden stimulus. Something suddenly there. 
Maybe it's a fire burning out of control. Or maybe it's someone who's particularly gloomy today and why should they be gloomy or whatever. So in the research, in the scientific way, they tried to eliminate as many factors as they could and they boiled it down to just simply a startle response, a loud noise. And what they found was that people who had meditated for a long time could sit with an awareness of what was going on when the startle when the startling noise happened their nervous system didn't register a startle response so even though you and me and folks that you know maybe not as deeply concentrated as they are would have a startle response you could see nervous nerve impulses moving and parts of brains lighting up in a functional MRI and so on. They discovered is that the meditating monks were able to hear the startle response and still have their spaciousness. And the point is not that they didn't hear it or that they were so spaced out that, you know, it wasn't there, but they did hear it. They just didn't have that immediate kind of adrenaline, uh, sparking, lightning rod feeling in the back. And, you know, we need to do something. So uh, this research, I think, is very supportive of this concept of spaciousness that we can foster with the five remembrances. So being present for silence, the sound of silence. We hardly ever have real silence in our lives. uh, My wife and I just finished a trip to the southwest, and we went to the Grand Canyon and spent some time walking in the desert uh, near Sedona. And it was a beautiful experience. The desert has a physical representation of silence for me. It's very subdued. Not so much stimulus, not so much intensity, vibrancy. Now, I'll just read you a little passage from Edward Abbey, one of my favorite authors, who for a period of time was a ranger in the southwest at Arches National Monument, and spent enough time in this country that he, I think, was able to put into words this quality of silence. So this is from his book, Desert Solitaire, A Season in the Wilderness. He says, The desert says nothing. Completely passive, acted upon but never acting, the desert lies there, like the bare skeleton of being. Spare, sparse, austere, utterly worthless. 
inviting not love, but contemplation. Despite its clarity and simplicity, however, the desert wears at the same time, paradoxically, a veil of mystery. Motionless and silent, it evokes in us an elusive hint of something unknown, unknowable, about to be revealed. Since the desert does not act, it seems to be waiting. But waiting for what? That passage and the experience of being there in this vast, beautiful desert puts me in mind of what Gill says about the meditative state that put simply, it's noticing the silence with a curiosity and almost as though you have a question, what is this? So as we sit, having that readiness to notice, what is this? So how do we ready ourselves to notice what is this? To move beyond the urge to say, oh, I know what this is. This is the so-and-so and that and because of this and here's why that happened. And, you know, this analytical rush that we have, it's very strong in us. And it's a very good thing. It's very good to have an analytical mind that can sort things out and notice relationships. But it's also a very good thing to have the silence and the spaciousness and just that unspoken, curious question. What is this? In my experience, I uh, have moments of that kind of spaciousness. And I'll share one moment with you, and I'd like you to think about other moments that you have that are like this, of this momentary, open, questioning, curious spaciousness. My story is that I was back at Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts, on a long sit. And the first few weeks were kind of fall weather and autumn leaves and it was was a nice environment. And then about the end of the second week, uh, some guy started mowing the lawn outside with a loud power lawnmower. And so all afternoon, of course, the afternoon sits are the hard ones (laughs) because I don't know why, but it's hard for me to sit in the afternoon. And my mind is noticing this power lawnmower and where it's going and how much farther it has to go. 
So it took a week or two weeks of just noticing, ah, there's that power lawnmower, and there I am tracking it along. Finally, the mind started letting go. Just, okay, there it is, but I don't have to be so involved with it. And just as the mind started letting go of the power lawnmower, hunting season started. (laughs) And I could hear off in the distance hunters with their guns. And I could just think of Bambi with its big, beautiful eyes, you know, hiding in a little forest glen. Start, yeah, exactly, startled. And so it took weeks of just letting those sounds of guns die away. And finally, slowly over time, I got to where I could hear the sound of a gun and not instantly visualize some disastrous scene. And one day, this was about uh, the end of November, and I think hunting season had just ended. Uh, I went out uh, for a little walk, and I was walking through a forest glade, and there was a little deer. And this deer saw me, and I thought, oh my gosh, does the deer know that hunting season's over? (laughs) And does it know that I'm, hey, I'm... (laughs) I'm the most trustworthy guy you could ever be in a glade with. And and we had this eye thing going on and we just we watched each other's eyes. And I I just paused and just tried to settle, you know, just have no outward signs of threat and and no inward, nothing inward that was at all threatening and even noisy. And sure enough, we we were able to make eye contact and just kind of be present for each other for it seemed like a long time. And then very slowly, I just kind of backed slowly out of the forest glade. And, you know, I cherish that experience. It, It was just such a sweet experience to be with that life that was able to trust me. And who knows how that happened, Uh, you know. But the experience for me was that there was, at the end of all of this sitting and all of this noticing my startle reaction, there was, at the end of this, enough kind of peace and spaciousness that I didn't scare this little fawn. And so my fondest wish after that is that I do that in all my relationships, that I I don't present a threat, that there's this feeling of I'm okay here. We can work something out. It'll be okay. So that's... My thoughts about the five remembrances putting us in touch with ourselves in a a way that is unconditioned, 
that doesn't draw on who we've always thought we are or who we've wanted to be or who other people have wanted us to be. It's just fresh. It's just fresh as a, as a rose in the dawn. Just brand new with dew on it that we can be with ourselves let the analysis go, let the judgments go, and just open to that fresh, peaceful spaciousness that is our birthright and that the teachings of 2,500 years tell us is our nature. It is our nature to just be in love with life, with each other, with ourselves, with what comes to us, to just be able to receive it all with an acceptance, a generosity, and a spaciousness. So the sound of silence... I wish us all lots of silence. I wish us all the opportunity to notice silence and to notice those little punctuations to silence. A cell phone, a car, a thought, a memory, a harsh sound off in the distance or a repetitive sound that goes over and over. So whatever comes our way, whether it's a startle response, the forest is on fire, or a moment of sweetness, is present for us. May we open to that. May we be present. May we not condition it. May we ask very silently, without words, what is this? What is this in this silence? Well, our time is almost up this evening. We have just a few minutes. I'm going to ask that we uh, save the last couple of minutes for a sharing of the merit, which is a tradition that has great richness for me and I hope others. But we have just a couple of minutes. Is there any wish on your part? Just raise your hand if you have something to contribute to the silence. A thought, a memory. Yeah, share your name, please. I'm George. George, there's a microphone right there. Speak right Is Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to comment or share. I'm going to ask you to share. Uh, you turned me on once by saying something about the beauty of not knowing. 
and then you know I was listening for something that would address not knowing, and I didn't hear it. And the other thing I didn't hear was uh, uh, loving and having dear things, but they change. I mean, some ways they change are obvious. They die or disappear. But could you talk about the change and the not knowing, please, a few words? The intention of Krishnamurti in writing this book about freedom from the known was to help us understand that uh, what we know may get in our way. And so we have to be alert when something comes to us, be alert to what we project onto it. Are we projecting ourselves, our attitudes, our background, our hopes and dreams and so forth? Or are we being present in the silence and noticing just what is? So that's the freedom from the known. And then <clears throat> the change is, of course, the impermanence of life. Where the, the, uh, we've talked here many nights about dukkha and nietzsche and anatta the three characteristics of existence. And then permanence being the one that is really, uh, it really kind of rocks our boat. And so noticing that in the midst of the change, we can still have vibrant relationships and we can still have our loves and our passions and our energy and our enthusiasm as long as we're not fooling ourselves that it's permanent. So as long as we can be straight ahead and say, my desire to enjoy and be with this and so forth has to be conditioned with my knowledge that it will change and I will be separated from it or it will be separated from me. So thanks for asking that. What was your name? George. George. Thanks, George. Well, thank you very much for your attention. What I'd like to do is have us just sit in meditative posture at the end. And I'll do a little sharing of the merit. So in the tradition of... 2,500 years, we bring to our awareness at the end of this time together the wish that any value that we have created this evening by virtue of our being present with each other, by speaking, by opening to what is, that that value rests in our hearts, for us, and it's expressed through our lives as we move forward into the future. And that indeed, the benefit of our being together this evening is shared widely with all beings everywhere. And the phrases I use, I'll share. You can use your phrases if you wish. May all beings be safe from inner and outer harm. 
May all beings be happy, just as they are. May all beings be healthy and strong. May all beings be at ease, living vibrantly in this world just as it is. And may all beings be free. Thank you very much.